Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we are on Psalm 126. Psalm 126. Uh, We're making our way through, as I told you before, the Psalms of Ascent go from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. So we're uh, quite a ways down this road as we've been looking at the Psalms. Uh, I was thinking back this week over the Psalms that we've covered so far. So Psalm 120 through 126, as well as many of the Psalms we were looking at in the early weeks when we were doing services over video at home. As many of you remember, we've been working through the Psalms really since the middle of March. And I was thinking about how so many of these psalms are really a tool that Christians, believers, Jews have used for generations to refocus their perspective on the world. Uh, As you know, it's so easy right now to be swept up into the events of our day and to have our perspective absorbed by the news headlines, the narratives around us. And what the Psalms have long been is a tool by which we regain a perspective on what God is doing and what it means to live by faith. In fact, these Psalms of Ascent do just that. For the traveler who is working their way towards Jerusalem, these Psalms were meant to focus that anticipation, that perspective, that view on Jerusalem, that final destination ahead. Um, This last week, I participated in a pastor's conference in Nebraska, and so I had a long car drive. I drove up there seven hours one way and seven hours back, uh, went there Monday and came back Thursday. And I was thinking about uh, how we travel today with all of the technology we have, and uh, much to my dad's frustration, who always has a map and always knows exactly where he is and all of the roads that are connected to the road that he's on, I have a tendency to set the destination in my GPS and head out on a seven-hour drive, not really knowing exactly how I'll get there, but trusting that the GPS knows better than me. I had a vague sense, so I wasn't completely naive to where I was going. But uh, many of us have all of these tools. We have a phone that we can plug in a destination and up plots the fastest route. We can turn toll roads off. We can turn gravel roads off. We can control it, but there is the little blue line we follow. Uh, My car, the phone syncs to the radio, so whenever I'm coming up on a turn, whatever I'm listening to stops, and I get the announcement, your turn is in two miles. My watch is connected to my phone, so it vibrates on my hand whenever I'm supposed to be taking the turn off of the road that I'm on. And there at the bottom of the app, you get the ETA. Uh, Seven hours away, and it'll tell you to the minute what time you will arrive at this destination. And then you, of course, play the game. Can I shave two minutes off of this seven-hour drive to get there a little bit faster under the speed limit, of course. Uh, This technology makes it so easy for us to set a destination, to set off in pursuit of it, and make our way and end up at that place, knowing exactly when we'll arrive as long as we stay on the course of this little blue line. In another 10 years, they tell us that you won't even have to make the turns. (laughs) You'll set the destination, the car will do the driving, and you can set back and just arrive at your destination without having thought a bit about it. Wouldn't it be nice, remember these Psalms of Ascent we've been reading are in many ways an analogy for life itself, faith, pilgrimage. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a GPS system like that for life and faith? You had some future goal, some dream, some person that you wanted to be years from now, or some uh, goal that you would like to achieve with your life. And all you would have to do is sort of type it into the life search box and hit go, and boom, right before you, a blue line pops up, a path to take, an ETA on when you can expect to achieve your dream, and all the confidence of the world, you don't have to think, just when the phone buzzes, take the turn to the next destination of your life. You could enjoy the scenery and turn your mind off and just arrive at that end goal. Wouldn't it be nice if it worked that way? Um, The truth is, GPSs don't actually work that well in real life, let alone trying to live your life by some coordinates. If you Google, this is actually quite a bit of fun, if you Google uh, after service, of course, uh, GPS disaster stories, 
Uh, it's amazing how many of these stories exist of people who blindly followed the directions of their GPS into sort of disastrous situations. Stories of people who literally will drive off cliffs or drive into lakes because the GPS said turn and they turn <laughs> regardless of what was in front of them. I actually was reading one story this week about a lady in Brussels who was going to pick a friend up at a train station just north of Brussels, a couple hours away. She got in, set her GPS, didn't think anything of it when she started traveling south instead of north towards the station, didn't think anything about it as she passed through all the major cities of Germany, and finally, 12 hours later, when she hit the border of Croatia, recognized that her GPS had led her the wrong direction. This is apparently, it's on the internet, so it's got to be a true story, right? Uh, The point is, you know as well as I do, as great as the technology is, all of us have put in the wrong address or hit the wrong path or somehow realized the GPS was not working quite as well as we thought that it was. One of the things that these GPSs and technology, the way we travel today, has done to us is that it's kept us from recognizing so much of the world that's around us. As long as we see the little directional indicator on the GPS, we don't really need to know what town we're passing through, what road we're on, what road's connected to the road we're on. We drive right along, trusting and believing that we're headed in the right direction. Uh, A few years ago, I read this article in the New York Times about how these digital maps and the way we use technology to orient ourselves is impacting how we think about our place in the world. Uh, The author, Nick Bilton, is a journalist who writes about technology in an article titled, a tech world that centers on us, the user, he wrote this. If you pull out your smartphone and click the button that says locate me on your mapping application, you will see a small dot appear in the middle of your screen. If you start walking down the street in any direction, the whole screen will move right along with you, no matter where you go. This is a dramatic change from the print-on-paper world where maps and locations are based around places and landmarks, not on you and your location. He concluded, now we are always in the center of the map, and it's a very powerful place for us to be. The impact of always being at the center of the map, always being at the center of your world, your perspective on this small piece of ground in which your feet are planted, knowing not much more than the little blue line that's leading you to the next step, has its consequences. Your perspective, that key word we talked about at the beginning, becomes much smaller than in the days of old when you understood how all of the places around you were connected. The ancient Jewish traveler on a pilgrimage couldn't have imagined such a world, a world in which all that mattered was the thin blue line by which they followed to Jerusalem. Theirs was a world comprehensive in perspective, a world of lands and peoples and passes and roads and risks and conditions that forced their perspective far beyond themselves in the place they were. They felt every step of the journey and bore with them a long tradition of people who had walked that same path towards that same goal and had filled that experience with psalms and songs by which they thought about and traveled that pilgrimage. That self-centeredness that our technology so often uh, relates, you know how it goes. You go to Amazon and what is listed on the homepage, the things you've been looking at, the things you might want. You open the news, what has happened? You see the news stories, like the news stories you've liked before. So much of our experience, the information, is about us at the center. But that has its consequences, not just on technology, but also on the way we practice faith. Everything about our faith comes to center on us. Like the map, I open my Bible, sometimes digitally, sometimes in print, and I imagine myself at the center of it. These verses are about me. These promises are about me. This salvation is about me. 
They matter whenever I need them to matter. Whenever I have a use for them, I can apply them and get myself down the road. Everything is about my choosing, my reading, my selecting. What the Psalms do, particularly read the way that we've been reading them, forcing yourself through them, not because thematically it's what you need, but because 126 comes after 125, which comes after 124, forcing yourself through the sequence of this Psalms of Ascent, this pilgrimage, forces you out of this tendency to always pick and choose what you think you need. It forces your perspective into something broader, things, curiosities along the roadside that you didn't know were there. On your little path with yourself at the center, you had failed to recognize, suddenly finding meaning and perspective and value in things you might not have selected. And Psalm 126 does this as well as any of the Psalms, this reorienting of your perspective to something bigger than yourself at the center, the expectation of what you need. So if you've got your Bible, Psalm 126. Once again, a short one. I'm going to read all the way through verse 1. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126. Um, Psalm 126 has three perspectives of orientation. It looks back on how God had restored Zion, Jerusalem. It makes a realization at the center of the song about the present, discovered from that having looked back. And then it looks forward, a request to what's to come in the days ahead, past, present, and future. So first, this back section. The psalm opens with an image of how God had restored Zion, uh, given back its treasures, its riches. Who could have imagined how it would have been possible for God to have done that act? As many of the Jews moving into exile walked away from homes and the temple and their great city burning in ruins having been conquered, um, there was this little archaeological discovery uh, a few weeks ago, a boy hiking in the Negev, the desert we'll talk about in a minute, found this little clay inscription, and it was of a, a conquering warrior who was hauling a captive in slavery who was naked and bound behind him, this little clay carving from uh, the Canaanite period that just popped up. The kid literally found it laying on the side of the trail, a huge discovery. This is the image, Israel being led out, humiliated and in, sh- in shame, chained to one another, hauled off into a distant land their great city of Jerusalem burning behind them, who in that moment could have imagined that God would restore the fortunes of Zion, that he would bring his people back and rebuild the city and the temple and all of their worship, that Jerusalem would one day be again what it was before its defeat. The psalmist says that that whole idea was like a dream to them, who, as they were being hauled off, could have imagined it outside of a dream, having closed their eyes and fallen asleep and Imagine the absurdity of its possibility. Yet, the end of verse 2 recounts that this remarkable realization of that dream is exactly what happened. God did great things for them. What they only could have dreamed of, God had done exactly that. Having fixed his mind on the past, the remarkable stories in which this pilgrim had inherited from forefathers before him, 
You know those stories of how God was faithful to his people, how he held up his promises to his people, how he delivered his people, how he walked with his people, how he restored his people. You've inherited that line of stories like this psalmist does. And reflecting back on how those people worshipped for God's goodness and faithfulness, the psalmist realizes something about his present moment. As equally impossible as his moment might seem, or your moment might seem, verse 3, God has done great things for us. The past perspective of how God had done it for Jerusalem suddenly shifts into the present tense. God is doing this for us too. That we can look at our own lives, our own dreams, the impossibility of our own situation, and conclude that if God was faithful to them then, look at all the ways he's being faithful to us now in the present. The psalmist's view of the past reframes how he thinks about his present situation. We do the same. It's the centering of our faith. We too, as believers, look back to what God has done and from the implications of that event, draw certain conclusions about our own day, our own moment. We don't serve Jesus moment by moment because every moment of serving him feels good. It's so easy. We immediately give benefit out of saying we're a Christian everywhere we go. The discount rates come out. People start giving us free things. This is not the experience, right? Oftentimes, being a Christian is hard and sacrificial and difficult. But we look back on what we have received from Christ, and we suddenly say, even in the midst of difficulty, God has done great things for us. It, in many ways, is like a dream. Um, Imagine if you could dream up the perfect religion that would work best for your life. This is not so absurd. People do this today. You can do this. What works best for you? What would you like religion to be like? What do you think about God? How would you like for it to work? Imagine if your dream went something like this. Knowing nothing about Christianity, you sat down to say, I'm going to create the religion that works best for me, for my life, for my psyche. God would look like this. God would die for me. You know, all the faults and sins and wrong I've done, God would bear those things for me. God will pay the punishment for it. And I want him to give me all of this forgiveness and freedom for free. Even as I'm sinning against him, even if I refuse to acknowledge that he's doing it for me, I would like for him to go ahead and just give me all of that benefit while I'm in the middle of sinning against him. I want everything to come by grace, just gifts. If this God could just give me gifts all the time, that would be great. And if he could promise me a future, make it a whole eternity, forever and ever, in which he would fix everything that was wrong about my world and my experience and me, that would be nice if he could throw that in too. Um, My point is, who would have dreamed this religion? Who would have said, this is the kind of God that I would like? This is what I'm looking for in a religious experience and a God. But yet, that's exactly the story that we receive as believers. Isn't it shocking? Who could have dreamed that this would be the way that God would work salvation? By grace, by forgiveness of sins, by death and bearing our sins in his place while we were yet still sinners. Don't you hear echoes of Psalm 126? We were like those who dream. Realizing the realization of this dream, our mouths filled with laughter. The irony of it all. This is what God did. What we could have never dared or imagined asking or have had the boldness to even dream up, this is the salvation God worked. God has done exactly what could have only been a dream. The Lord has done great things for us. The impact of this realization, this present realization of God's goodness for the psalmist is gladness. It's the Hebrew word joy. Joy. 
when we realize that that unbelievable dream that nobody could have ever possibly imagined, forgiveness, grace, mercy, done on our behalf, is suddenly ours by grace alone, how do we not feel a sense of joy, laughter? Um, C.S. Lewis, in his memoir, Surprised by Joy, he writes, All joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. The experience of joy is not something that I fashion for myself. I make and I can store it away in a safe at home. I can put it in a bank account. I can hold on to it. That's my joy as long as I possess that thing. Lewis says that joy is a realization, a discovery of something, a reminder of something. Joy is about obtaining something that is either behind you or in front of you. In other words, joy is a matter of perspective, and that perspective being broader and bigger than your own moment, your own place, your own possession, your own self-centeredness. You won't find joy at the center of a map, looking down at your feet, staring at the line in front of you. You find it by looking beyond yourself, setting yourself aside for a moment, your situation, your desires, your expectations, your requests, and instead looking back to the bigger story that you find yourself a part of, what God has been doing, what God has done for you, the unbelievableness of this salvation and grace, the stories that you've been given. And you find it by looking ahead to the implication of that, what it means still to come. This is what the psalmist does, having realized this, laughing for joy, the gladness of God's faithfulness realized for the moment, it bursts into the images of this joy for the future, restored fortunes that will be lost. This feeling of joy that every tear becomes a sowing of still greater joy, that everything that is difficult about here and now makes the joy of that future realization, the possession of that hope, even greater. I like that image of laughter, the irony of it, that the suffering here and now produces something even better in those days to come. Streams of water in the Negev. The image, uh, I've been to the Negev, it's the southern part of Israel, it's the most arid and desert part of Israel. This is uh, the area where uh, most of Israel spent around this area for the 40 years of wandering there and south in this wilderness area. There are not streams running through the Negev. Uh, every once in a while you get these mass cloud bursts, greenery will come up for a moment, and then it's gone. And what the psalmist imagines is instead of this arid desert, instead this joy becomes like water flowing through those desert places, refreshing and quenching thirst and growing vegetation where it didn't exist before. This is what it is like to recognize a new perspective of God's goodness, that water begins to flow into the future and you see a path before you bigger than you could have realized. Tears that are planted and produce a harvest of rejoicing and hope. Um, these days, that conversation about joy is not one that you hear a lot. Instead, we tend to talk a lot about happiness. Don't you want to be happy? Doesn't everybody deserve to be happy? I don't feel happy with my life, my relationship, my experience, my job anymore. But happiness is just that, a feeling. Happiness is that moment of recognizing whether I'm on the GPS's track at the exact moment in time or not. Happiness has to do with this moment, how I feel, the perspective of myself, my inward thinking. What do I have? What do I want? How am I living up to it? How do I feel about this present situation? 
But joy is not primarily described in the Bible as a feeling. It's not something you possess. It's not something that you have. It's not something that can be taken from you in a moment. Instead, it's a gift, a kind of grace that God gives you, a realization about something that happened and is still to come by which you can constantly hold on to regardless of the situation you find yourself in. In the days where you feel least happy about the place that you are, joy is the thing that sustains you because you know what you have and what is still to come. For happiness, you must always be searching and looking and finding, but with joy, you find a kind of contentment having received, and by that receiving, having a view of the days of the future to come. Joy requires that you take the time to look backwards, to pull your eyes off yourself in this moment, and to instead, like the psalmist, fix your attention on what you have received, and to look forward and anticipate what is still yet to come. The great theologian Karl Barth explained that joy is the simplest form of gratitude. I think that's a really good working definition of joy. When you are deeply, deeply grateful, that experience of gratitude is a sense of joy, having received. Or Bonhoeffer puts it in another way, gratitude changes the pangs of memory into a tranquil joy. That when you experience gratitude, the pressure of the moment... The sorrow of the moment is transformed into a kind of steadiness, a tranquility that is joy, peace, the restoration of all things, the wiping away of tears like streams of water in the desert. The key to all of this psalm is that simple line in the middle. God has done great things for us. To say that is to experience joy. And joy is a constant reminder of that statement. If I can hold on to that then all things are mine, that God has done great things for me. No matter the moment, no matter the loss, no matter the situation, I can hold on to this simple fact. God has done great things for us. I'm in on it. I wonder this morning as we close and prepare to worship if that's something you can say and really mean it, a sense of joy. God has done great things for me. I can look back and see it. I may not always feel it. It may not always be there in feelings of happiness and blissfulness. The day I'm in may be difficult and hard, and there may be much about the future I fear. But when I stop and I clear my mind and I broaden my perspective out of myself in this moment, I recognize just how much God has done for me. So I hold on to it. I look to the future through its lens, imagining that what God has done generation after generation after generation, he will do in this generation and those to come. Faithfulness, grace, mercy, perseverance, steadfastness, love, kindness, that my future is like that past. So Peter can write in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, You love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may not see him now. None of us saw him before, but somehow, laughter, joy, gladness, the experience of it, You look to him and you recognize that you are receiving his salvation 
and joy is the byproduct. Let's close in prayer this morning, and then we're going to worship, respond in joy, holding on that perspective through song. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we do it recognizing how easy it is for us to lose perspective. To God, as we plot our courses and as we worry about our future and we make decisions and we try to figure out our lives and try to achieve our goals, God, as we suffer under our own failures and our own pains and the difficulty of this world, it is so easy to feel alone, to feel forgotten, to feel like this faith isn't paying off in this moment. So, God, we're thankful for psalms like this one that force us to take a moment like this Sunday to take a deep breath and to reflect back on how faithful you have been to your people. How when they were hauled off into captivity, who could have dreamed that you would restore Jerusalem? Yet you did it. And God, crushed by our own sinfulness, our own failures, who could have imagined that you, God, would come and bear that sin? That you would offer us forgiveness, not because we ask for it, but because you love us. And that by grace and mercy, you are offering us a new eternity, a new path. God, it is so easy after years of following you to lose the remarkableness of that, the unexpressible glory and joy of that realization, as Peter put it. But we do that this morning. We turn our hearts and our minds, our perspective back to that thing which we have received from you. God, as we do, we say like this psalmist, you have done great things for us. You have been good to us. You have delivered us. You have poured grace and mercy out on us where it was not deserved. God, forgive us for losing hold of that, for living in this moment like it's only us at the center of this story, using what we can of faith to get ourselves by. God, we are caught up in something so much bigger than ourselves. Your gospel is about so much more than just me and what I feel this morning. That we are in on a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, a new kingdom and a new ruler coming. And as we realize it in this moment, God, it casts our minds and our imagination to that future ahead of us. Streams of water, tears producing greater gladness and joy a restoration of everything that we have lost and suffered here and now. That God, this joy begins to produce in us a hope, a tranquility, a steadfastness. God, we don't want to be people who live small lives with small perspectives, absorbed with ourselves and our own desires. But God, we want to be people with eyes and vision big and wide to your grace and your glory. So we do that this morning by worshiping you, by declaring your goodness, by declaring your greatness. God, as we sing these songs, let your Holy Spirit move our hearts into a world bigger than our own. Let us taste of that water in the desert. Wipe away the tears and the pain that some have even now. God, the loss that those are experiencing today, God, restore those things by hope and by faith and by love that we might say like this psalmist, you are doing great things, you have done great things, and you will do great things still to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning.